Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, and we've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, we're going to be starting off, as always, with a, a great round here on the Coach's Corner panel uh, with two uh, seasoned professionals, if you will. They're going to be joining us in the conversation. And then a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, Danielle Makapani, uh, who is a former LPGA professional and now currently plays on the Legends Tour, among other things. We're going to talk to her a little bit later on the broadcast. Uh, and uh, one thing, I, just a quick program note I want to uh, mention, not program note, but uh, something I wanted to mention is, is uh, obviously we are uh, post-Hurricane Laura, which uh, went through uh, parts of the uh, Emerald Coast yesterday, uh, actually early this morning, and uh, our, our thoughts and prayers go out to the families who uh, stayed behind. Uh, hopefully everybody is, is uh, safe and sound, and we know there's a lot of devastation, a lot of uh, damage, but uh, buildings can re- be replaced, lives cannot. So um, very grateful for the, those that uh, got out of harm's way and, and found shelter elsewhere, and for those that did stay behind, again, uh, hopefully everything is okay, and uh, by all intents and purposes from what we've heard so far, uh, there has been very minimal uh, personal loss uh, in through the storm. So our thoughts and prayers go out to those along the Emerald Coast and uh, particularly the Lake Charles uh, area, which uh, took the, the brunt of the storm uh, again about 1 uh, to 2 a.m. this morning. So again, our thoughts and prayers are with the families there. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to be joined here uh, by a couple of great guys in just a moment on the Coach's Corner panel, but let me remind everybody that Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing top quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And of course, Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instructional magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teach professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at Golf Tips. Uh, golftipsmag.com excuse me all right um first up on the panel is of course john decker and he is a pga instructor motivational speaker he's also a senior editor and top uh, 25 instructor with golf tips magazine in 2015 he was the southern ohio uh, teacher of the year and prior to that he was the head instructor at the grand cypress golf academy uh, where he worked under top 100 uh, instructors, Fred Griffin and the late Phil Rogers. He's also the author of Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, uh, which, of course, has an accompanying Bible study. And uh, Clint Wright, of course, is a 30-year uh, member of the PGA, and he's also a partner at uh, TGM. And one of the best, in my opinion, in the short game. Uh, he's been teaching for many, many years and has been a uh, regular here on uh, the Coach's Corner and I want to thank both of you guys for joining me. Uh, guys, welcome to the Coach's Corner panel. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you, Ted. All right, appreciate it. All right, so, um, Clint, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you tonight. 
Um, okay. We're going to talk about a, a, num- a number of different areas. And, uh, you know, particularly for beginning golfers who don't want to get bogged down with uh, a lot of golf tips, which typically can be aimed at better players or more advanced golfers. Uh, really, we're trying to give you a few simple ideas that might help uh, and a few tips that uh, might be able to uh, help elevate your game into a little bit better status. Um, so here are some examples we're going to talk about tonight, uh, preparing for the round, uh, hitting it further. Obviously, we want to see if we can get more distance uh, making good club choices, meaning uh, selecting the right club for you, given the circumstance. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about shots around the green and, of course, the mental game. So, Clint, I want to start with you on this and talk about um, when it comes to practice and preparation and uh, how can golfers, and this is a question I'm sure we've all been faced with, is how can I get better results from my practice round and how should I warm up before a round of golf? Because there are two uh, uniquely different uh, areas of the game, if you will, in preparation, one involving working on, on different fundamentals and so forth, and the other is obviously what we're going to do before we uh, get ready to tee it up uh, on the first tee. So talk about both of those. Start off, if you wouldn't mind, with practice. Um, what are some things that the folks can do to, to put together a better practice session, and then what should they be doing instead of when they're getting ready to warm up for a round? Okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think the practice session has to start with the previous round or the previous several rounds that if you're gathering data and you're really genuinely trying to, to improve how you play, some of the information or data you get out of those previous rounds, like how many fairways you're hitting, you know, curvature of the ball, you know, are you missing more greens to the right than you're missing to the left, you know, things of that nature. Then you can, you have to go to the practice range with a reason or a purpose of what you're trying to accomplish with that small bag of balls or maybe the large bag. You know, I had a, a young gal that, that worked for us years ago, and I hit a few, I went out and hit some balls, and she said, well, how'd it go? I said, my practice sessions are always good, always. She said, no, nah, you can't do that. I said, yeah, they're always good because I go out there with a purpose, and if I accomplish that in 10 balls, I quit. If it takes 100 mm-hmm. balls, I keep hitting them. I'm going to accomplish what I went out there for before I leave. And therefore, you're improving. You're not wasting time, not wasting just mindly hitting balls downrange. We all see a lot of that. They get a big bag of balls. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pull a Hogan here. I'm going to beat it out of the ground. Uh, And so I'm just going to hit balls and hit balls and hit balls. And they don't ever see any improvement because they're just slinging balls down the range instead of trying to Mm -hmm. accomplish what they went out there for. And if they'll, if they'll go to that practice tee with, and I actually got some students, I said, I want you to write it down. Okay, Write down what you're going out there for, where you don't forget, and try to accomplish that. And you do, then go chip and putt or do something else. But don't just stand there and hit balls down range uh, and think you're getting anywhere. Um, as far as the, the rounds, the warm-up portion before a round, Personally, I always try to just focus on finding a rhythm. I'm going to loosen up a little bit, get the blood flowing, get my heart rate up a little bit maybe, but I want to find the rhythm of the day because my fundamental swing is not going to change from day to day. But my body rhythm might, you know. Um, I played two days ago and was running a little bit late and got to the guy. Of course, it took me three holes to get my heart rate down. So my rhythm was really quick those first three holes. So we don't ever know what our rhythm is going to be that day. So it's always best 
to warm up, get the, get your body moving. But I try to encourage people to focus on just find the rhythm for the day and, and try to mimic that and find it. And then go to the first tee and mimic that rhythm you you found uh, on the tee, the practice tee that day warming up. And with those two things, go to practice with a purpose to improve, find your rhythm for the day, and go out and enjoy your round. Yeah, and that's a great advice. Thank you. And, you know, I just just to sort of add one more thing, I think one of the, the problems, and Clint, I think you would probably agree with this, that we see a lot of golfers do is they, they don't understand the difference between the two. A practice session is when you work on some of the different uh, fundamentals that you may right. uh, be struggling with or you're working on certain areas of the game that you might uh, feel that you fall short in. Um, and, and that's what you do in a practice session. Warm-up, as you said, is to find your rhythm. Um, whatever game you brought that day to the golf course is what you're going to take out in the golf course. That's not the mm-hmm. time to be tinkering around, adjusting grips and, and moving ball positions and things like that. You play with what right. you've got. But again, like you said, you want to find your rhythm. And I think a lot of people confuse that. They get out there and they hit a couple of bad shots in their warm-up, and they figure, well, I've got to start making adjustments. So I've got to move the ball back or I've got to do this. And the next thing you know, they get out there and they've made so many changes before they've even hit the first mm-hmm. tee that they're pretty much predetermined to have a difficult round. So that's a great mm-hmm. advice. You're right. Just find your rhythm. Yeah, just find your rhythm in your warm-up and get out there and practice with a purpose when you're actually in a full-blown practice session. Um, great that's answers right. and, and great uh, great tips. Um, John, I want to move to you. And, and this is a, a question that uh, a lot of people uh, come up with. And I'm going to give you, because they sort of work hand-in-hand, I'll let you touch on both of these, but everybody wants to hit it farther. It's all we hear about uh, from uh, the teaching professional side is when our students come in is, well, how can I hit it farther? What can I do to hit it farther? Uh, first and foremost, they want to know how they can hit their add yards to their drives. Uh, and then they're all caught up in the numbers. They hear about, well, how can I improve my club head speed? Um, obviously, the faster the club head's going to move, and as long as you're making good solid contact, you're going to get further uh, distance. But um, talk about those two areas there. How do we uh, how do we deal with uh, clubhead speed? Is it as important as what a lot of people make it out to be? And how can we get some extra yards on our drives? Well, first of all, Ted, uh, thank you for having me on the show. And Clint, as always, I enjoy being on with you. I always pick up some good nuggets whenever I'm on the show with you. Um, right. The uh, the first thing I look at when you know when with any student with their driver and getting gaining distance is I'm going to start with their setup. And the first thing I look at is how high they tee the ball up. And I normally won't say anything. I'll kind of watch them uh, to see what they do with their tee height. But, but if you want to get more distance, you need to tee the ball high so that you can sweep the ball off the tee. You're actually hitting slightly up on your driver, uh, whereas the irons and, and the fairway woods and the hybrids, you're hitting slightly down. Um, so there's a little bit, and that's why the tour players use the tees. If you look at the long drive guys, they're really teeing the ball up high. You want to have a wide stance. That's going to give you power. And you want to tilt your shoulder. So if you're a right-handed player, your right shoulder should be tilted uh, lower than your left shoulder, and your head should be behind the ball. This is going to help uh, create that uh, swing path that's going to be slightly up on the ball to get the ball launched. You want to get the ball launched in the air. And then as far as the club head speed, club head speed is uh, obviously very important, but it's how you produce the club head speed. You want to produce the club head speed using your core muscles so that you're using your back and shoulders in the backswing, you're using your abs, your, your legs, um, you know, in the downswing. That's, that's the ideal scenario that you're looking for. 
But one of the things that really goes, uh, that, that re is very important to making sure that you're getting the right distance with your driver, and we're talking because that's the, the, the one thing that, that most common thing that, that students, you know, come in, they, they want, they either want to be more consistent with their irons or they want to hit longer drives. Um, if you want to get hit, hit longer drives, it's very important to get your driver fitted. And, it, and I, this is where you need to go to your local uh, PGA club professional and you need to sign up for a fitting. And it's very important to understand uh, because if you don't have the right shaft in your driver, um, then it doesn't matter um, how good your swing is, you're probably not going to get the most out of your swing. Uh, the, right, the right shaft and the right loft on your driver uh, is very important. And, and the biggest, um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes I see with a lot of, of players is they'll come in with drivers that are 25 years old. They've got an eight and a half degree driver and they wonder why they don't hit the ball as far as their friends. And, and in that situation, you can buy a game. There's technology out here. If you're using a driver that's old, older than, uh, say, five years, uh, you're probably behind the curve. So you need to make sure and have good equipment. Uh, and, and really, that's where the PGA you know, Club Professional can really help. Or go to a demo day. Uh, and then even some of the big golf warehouses are, are good for that as well. They have simulators and everything and getting their numbers. But, you know, and the last thing I'll tell, say about distance is if you want more distance, you need fitness. And golf fitness with the TPI certification, if you go to a pro that, that really knows what they're doing uh, or a, fit, a physical, uh, someone that specializes in TPI, you're, gonna, you're definitely going to improve because as your core muscles get stronger, you're going to be able to do what the instructor wants to do. And if I get somebody that's got a big, a big belly and, they, and they're not in shape and they want to hit the ball farther, it's really hard for me to get them to get that, you know, where they're using their back and shoulders and they're using their core muscles if they're out of shape. So adding uh, the fitness into your uh, routine, and not only are you going to play better golf, but you're going to feel better and it's really going to help you in your daily life. Yeah, I, you know, a lot of people, again, this one thing I want to add, um, you know, people have been under the impression, you know, they've heard the expression swing the handle, and, um, you know, once you get into the, the proper position, you can swing that handle as hard as you want, but they don't really understand that. And what they think a lot of times, I see a lot of amateurs, is they get the club up to the top, and they think, okay, now I can swing as hard as I want, and what they're doing is they're actually leading with their hands. They're pulling their hands down as quick as they can, thinking that they're going to generate a lot of club head speed. And what ultimately ends up happening is they get out of sequence. So their upper body ends up leading their lower body, and they end up throwing or casting the club in the process, which adds all types of problems. And they think that that's the way to get club head speed. And you're, you're exactly right in your analogy, John, is what you want to do is you want to have good core muscles, and you want to get the big muscles involved and turn – and pivot onto your right hand uh, side for, for right-handed uh, golfers. And then as you swing through and transition to your left side, you want to, again, use those big muscles to rotate through. And a lot of people misunderstand that, and they think that they've just got to pull down on that handle uh, or the grip, in other words, uh, as hard as they can. And that's not going to um, get the desired results that they want and, and exactly what you were talking about. Um, thank you for that, by the way, John. Uh, Clint, one of the other things that um, – another area that a lot of amateur golfers struggle with and that is the, the how to make good uh, club choices um, and an example uh, many golfers you know that struggle with their their tee shots have often asked me you know when should I use a three wood 
off the tee rather than a driver or even another fairway would. And then the second question, um, I want you to answer both of them, and that is uh, they're often short on their approach shots. How can they improve their club selection? So, uh, again, going for the green as an example, they're always falling short. We see this in pro-ams all the time. Um, uh-huh. They're just not good at making club selection. So talk about the first one, uh, you know, not always good to hit the, the driver off the tee if you're not doing well. How does, a, how does a golfer decide when they should pull back and not take out the big stick? And then when it comes to their approach shots, again, they're a little bit uh, short on, on when to make the proper selection. Yeah, no problem. Good question again. Well, you know, I've always looked at it from the green back somewhat of what club to hit off the tee. I mean, I'm trying to figure out what club do I want to hit into the green and what do I want in front of me. So I'm going out there and I'm hitting my driver. You know, I got I got a double direction miss today, one right, one left. I'm not I'm, when I get out there in the woods, I got trees in front of me. My, I'm not setting myself up well. So at that point, you've got to think about, I just need to set myself up to have the easiest second shot. And, you know, the, the third shot that we've talked about, this is the important shot. Mm-hmm. And so how do, how do you set that third shot up? And if you're struggling with a driver, I mean, you know, I used to have people come in and says, you know, hey, would you help me learn to hit my driver? And I said, well, how do you hit your three wood? And so they hit it real good. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> I just helped you hit your driver better. I mean, because... It's it's a one wood a driver, but it's the tee shot. It's not necessarily, you know. I tell people, you know what the the, the tee shot on the second hole technically does. From the rules, it puts you back in play. Because once you, so I don't see the driver as I just got to boom it. I'm trying to put my golf ball back in play. So right. wherever you're, you're you're not putting it back in play well with a driver, then you might want to find the other club in your bag you can put it back in play well with. And, and that, that takes a little bit of turning your ego off, you know, uh, to say, guys, I'm not yep. having a driver good today. I'm just going to bunt this three wood down the middle because now I'm just putting my golf ball back in play. So that's the attitude I think you can help you make better choices is if you're standing on that tee box thinking, I'm just going to put my ball back in play, then that will help you with your decision making because your objective now becomes totally different. It's not how far I can hit it down the fairway. Is it how can I put this ball back in play? Um, second right. question. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when they go out to the practice range, and here's where I think you run into problems. We all know that those range balls can either be marshmallows or they can be rockets. Yep. Okay. And they go out there and they hit that eight iron one time with a rocket and it goes 155. They can't hit a regular golf ball 155 yards with an eight iron for downhill downwind. But with that one range ball, they just rocketed mm-hmm. that thing out there. So in my, their mind, well, I hit my eight iron 155. Well, they probably on average hit their eight iron 140, 145. And that's why I think you see so many people coming up short. You know, we today have the most accurate information from how far I'm from the flag that we've ever had in our business. Everybody's got a range finder. Everybody's got all the technology. They know to that flag, I'm 155, so that's an 8-iron. But they don't hit their 8 So I've always tried to get people to gauge the distance they hit their clubs off of 7 out of 10. You're going to hit a couple of bad ones. You're going to hit one real good one, but then you're going to hit about 7 of them about the same distance. So that's the yardage you want to use. 
Because every now and then you're going to leave it in the bunker, and every now and then you're going to throw it off the back of the green. But seven out of ten times you're going to be on that yardage that that you want to hit, and you just have to understand those things. Um, and I've always tried to get people to gauge off of, we all do, what do you hit 150 yards? You know, what club do you hit if you took ten balls and you hit this club, seven out of ten of them going to go 150 yards. And then you just have to work your way back off of that or uh, in a little shorter, a little bit longer, based on your circumstances. 150 yards uphill is a lot further than 150 yards downhill. We all know that. Mm -hmm. But you have to take that into account when you're making your club selection that on flat ground, no win, your seven irons are 150 club, but I'm uphill now. So that may turn it into a six iron. But if they're using just raw yardage, they're going to start coming up short a lot. A lot of factors well, in and, club selection I, other than yardage. Right. And, you know, that's what I what I said when I, you know, I started the, uh, you know, bringing the questions to you is, is this is something that if you talk to a lot of tour players, this is m- probably 90% of the problem they see with most of the amateurs that they play mm-hmm. with uh, in, the, in the practice round is, or in the, you know, the pro-am part of it is that they – see amateurs 90% of the time are hitting or are under clubbing themselves. Uh, as you mm-hmm. said, they're hitting their eight iron thinking they're going to hit it 155 or even 160 on a good day. And they're falling short every single time. And so therefore you know, they don't hit it that far. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. They just don't hit it that far. And, yeah. yeah. Right. And you're exactly right. You know, depending on what range, I mean, I've been to some ranges and, I'll be striping them out there and thinking, wow, I'm, you know, my seven or eight irons really cooking today and I'll get out and have faced with a similar yardage and I'll end up being short. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I hit that one just as yeah. solid as I did in the range, but I fell 10, 12 yards short. And mm-hmm. you're right. You know, sometimes you get a marshmallow, sometimes you get a, a rock. I have to remember that. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a good okay. I'll have to remember I'm that just one. Trying to help, I'm just uh, trying to help you all out. That's all. I agree. <laughs> I agree. All right, John, I'm going to come back to you. Um, here's uh, here's another one too that a, a lot of folks uh, I've heard them ask over the years, and I think it's um, uh, and and really they're both a similar the same question, but just in reverse. And you'll understand in a moment. But um, some players will come to me and say, you know, they hit their ball very low. Uh, they want to know what they can do to hit the the to get a higher trajectory on their shots, and then the reverse some players are hitting it very very high um but need every once in a while to be able to hit a low trajectory shot excuse me um what can we do to help them well the the first thing i would say if you're if you're a low ball hitter uh, and you want more height on your shot um the first thing i would check is your ball position Uh, most likely the ball is too far back in your stance um, and, you know, I like to – I was taught in, in very much the similar way of Jack Nicholas golf my way. You pretty much play the ball inside of your left heel, uh, just right inside of the left heel, and what changes is the width of your stance and your distance from the ball. So that's the easiest way to re- have a repeatable swing. Uh, I heard Jack, or, uh, Tiger Woods say in a clinic one time, he said, if I want to hit the ball uh, lower, I move the ball back one ball, not – six inches, not eight inches, I move it one ball. So that's his version of moving the ball back in the stance. And so I see a lot of amateurs 
who play the ball, uh, you know, right of center, and they'll play it. And if you're playing the ball right of center, you're going to either hit a really low shot or you're going to stick the club in the ground. So that's the first thing I would check for if you're hitting the ball ball uh, too low if, uh, and you want to get more height. So if you play the ball more forward, you're definitely going to see a higher ball ball flight, and that, that should, help, should help you uh, hold the greens because – it's important to know when you're talking about distance, you know, the 155 or 150, whatever it is, you're hitting your seven or eight iron. It really doesn't matter about total distance. What really matters is carry distance. Because I see people who hit balls 100 yards that roll 50 yards. That's not going to work on the golf course. It might work on the driving range, but it does not work on the golf course. So it's very important that you know your carry distance. If you're hitting the ball too high, um, and you and you want to hit a lower ball flight. You know, when I first uh, – I grew up in western North Carolina, and the golf course was a, a mountain golf course, and it was very elevated. And so I learned to hit a lot – I had a really high ball flight. And I, and that was the only way you could play in the mountains. You, if you hit the ball low, you could not get, get the ball to the green. So then when I went down to Florida and started playing on the mini tours, I was hitting those big high – ball flight and my ball was blowing all over the place because of the crosswinds and I just was not used to playing in flat you know uh, uh, golf courses like that and so for me being 6-4 I had a hard time hitting a low ball flight so what I what the easiest way to hit a lower ball flight if you hit the ball real high number one is take extra club so instead of taking an eight iron take a seven iron number two is choke down on the club what you're essentially doing is you're turning a seven iron into an eight iron when you choke choke down on it. Uh, and then number three is narrow your stance. If you'll do those three things, if you'll take an extra club or two, depending on how low you want to hit it, if you will uh, narrow your stance and you'll choke down on the club, and then in your swing, you don't need to make a full high follow-through. Make more of a three-quarter follow-through. Uh, Tiger, you know, famously has his uh, – stinger shot that he hits now that he's doing that with a long iron uh, if you're going to most amateurs out there if they're trying to lower their ball flight they're doing it with their wedges and nine irons eight irons and things like that but those are some ways that you can lower your ball flight and not have to move the ball back in your stance because see what happens is when you narrow your stance your center of gravity moves more to the left when you widen your stance your center of gravity moves more to the right so what the tour players are doing is they're controlling their ball position by their weight distribution and how they narrow or widen their stance. On their drivers, they widen their stance because they want to launch it. When they want to hit a low shot into the wind, they narrow their stance. That gets their center of gravity more forward. It's much easier to do that than start moving your ball position all around. So those are some tips I think that will help the average golfer. But the number one thing to hit it lower, take more club than you need and make less swing. Well said. And that goes back really to what we talked about uh, in a practice and, and preparation. Um, you know, those are things that you can work on when you're out there practicing with a purpose. You're out there working in a full-blown practice session. These are some things that, that the guys are talking about that we want you, the listeners, to pay attention to. Work on those things when you're in a practice session. Don't do them, obviously, when you're just warming up before a round. Um, and if you do these things... And again, practice with a purpose. If you're trying to hit some low shots, those are what you want to work on. And as John just pointed out, um, when you start playing around with ball position, uh, not saying you can't move it back or move it forward a little bit, but it's not as much as you might think. And I think a better way, is, as John just pointed out, is just to either widen or uh, narrow your stance. Uh, can certainly help by moving your, your center of gravity um, forward or 
backwards, um, but also choking down and taking an extra club or two, depending on how low you want to hit the ball and conversely how high you want to hit the ball, uh, you do the opposite. So uh, some great points there, uh, John. Um, Clint, uh, I know you like to talk about putting, and this is something that a lot of amateurs uh, fall into. I'm going to give you two questions. One's going to be a putting question, question excuse me, and the other one is going to be a uh, bunker shot. Uh, and uh-huh. one of the problems that a lot of amateurs have is um, the inability to stop lifting their head while they're putting. They want to see where that ball is going. They lift it. They come out of their stance. And the next thing you know, they've either pulled the putt or they've pushed the putt. Um, you got a drill or something that can help do that? Uh, I know Jack Grout famously oh, yeah. used to clench uh, Jack Nicholas's hair uh, when he was <laughs> getting him to not move his head. But uh, what are some thoughts there? And then I'll, uh, the second one is, um, while you're thinking about that, is um, mm-hmm. people have uh, struggled in the bunker shots, especially uh, greenside bunkers, taking too much sand, uh, and the ball ends up not mm-hmm. coming out of the bunker. So let's talk about the green first. Uh, about keeping that head steady, and uh, and then talk about the bunker shot. Yeah. Okay. That, that's 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 good. Um, well, you know, I don't see this as what I'm about to say is not a drill. I, th- you know, people have to, I believe, understand there's more to putting than just the movement of the arms and the putter. A lot more to it. We all know that, but they never pay attention to it. It's like we've talked many times about, you know, trying to determine speed and what to look at and how to read the greens. And, and begin to, to understand that, that lag putting is the most important putt you're going to hit today because that's going to, lag putting is what's going to eliminate three putts, not, not making four-footers. Um, but I teach people through a drill to how they putt, and you've all heard this one, and I teach people you want to stroke, hold, and look. That's how you putt. It's not a drill. You stroke the putt, you hold your finish, and then you look. That's how you putt. Now, we, but we begin to develop it in through a drill on, the, on the, the practice green, obviously. We're going to stroke the ball. I want you to freeze your finish, hold it, and then you can look. And the way we look is very important. You don't look with your shoulders up. You turn your head to look. That's the drill. You stroke it, you freeze your finish, Turn your head, watch the putt, and that'll keep their their spine angle correct, okay, all the way through the putting stroke. But I I believe that they have to become understanding that that's how you putt. And if they watch people on television, they will see it in a lot of different forms. But it's stroke, hold, and look. Now some people hold longer, and then look. Some people look a little quicker, but they're all holding that finish and holding the spine angle all the way until the ball is towards the hole, okay? And whether you look up early or look up late, you know, the ball is going to be going where it's going, you know? And like I said, I've never – like I tell people, we joke about it, I've never seen anybody lose a ball on the green. It, you know, you're going to find it. So you don't have to look so early to find out where it's going. So stroke, hold, and look becomes your process of putting, not just a drill. And I think that will help people – maintain their spine angle, maintain the, the flow through the ball, and, and improve their putting dramatically. Um, bunker play. Well, we all know that there's all different kinds of bunker sand that we see. Like the, the course that I'm at right now, the, the bunkers are firm. They're kind of like tour quality. They keep them firm. They're, you know, and so there's, there's one thing there. But 
the general thought pattern. You have to allow the club to do the work for you. The sand wedges with the bounce and the, the angles that we have today will do a lot for you if you will trust it. What I see with most people in bunkers is they don't finish their swing through the ball. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was taught years ago by I think one of the best, you know, best teachers out there about bunker play. And he said, you know, all you have to do is understand if you take the sand that's behind that ball and make it go on the green, the ball will be in front of it. It's the ballistics of the sand that's going to put that ball on the green. If you get that started and you learn to do that, then you can begin to develop some different techniques by laying the club open more, getting more bounce, less bounce, depending on the type of conditions you're looking at. Obviously, we have firm bunkers. We don't need as much bounce on the club, so you don't lay it open quite as much. you got fluffy sand. You need a lot of bounce, so you roll it open, get maximum bounce off of that thing. But every one of those shots, the success of it will be determined by you being aggressive. Okay? Don't be afraid of the shot because it's the only shot in the game of golf that you don't make contact with the ball. You just got to get close. Okay? But you have to be aggressive. You have to take that sand and make it move out of that bunker, and the ballistics of the sand will take the ball with it. So one tip that I would give is that if you do nothing else, you know, like I was told, always get it out of the bunker you're in. If it ends up in the bunker on the other side, so what? But get it out of the bunker you're in. So be aggressive, let the club work for you, and you change the, the, the bounce angles based on the conditions of the sand. Yeah, well said. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, it's again, it goes back to practicing. And these are things that a lot of our amateur golfers um, fall way short. They might go in and hit one or two bunker shots, and they get it out the first time and think, okay, I'm good. And, you know, uh, that might be fine. But again, depending on where you're playing, if you're playing different courses, sometimes conditions mm-hmm. can change. Um, one course, the sand could be a little firmer. Uh, another course could be a little bit more soft. So uh, again, you have to understand that. And that's where practice uh, with a purpose, I think, comes in, uh, mm-hmm. helping you in these different areas. Uh, well said, uh, Clint. Thank you. Um, John, this is another area. We're going to stick around the green a little bit here. Um, uh, questions that I'm often faced with is, how can I stop hitting fat or thin pitch shots is the first one and uh, avoid hitting uh, the ball thin on say a soft lob shot. Uh, this is a, uh, an area too that a lot of amateurs uh, kind of miss the boat on. Uh, maybe you can uh, share some of the, the techniques and, and what needs to happen here. So let's start with uh, just our typical wedge shots. We get a lot of people hitting them fat or thin and, and, uh, you know, it's not even so much an issue of direction anymore. It's just uh, quality of contact. And then, of course, uh, when they want to get a nice, high, soft lob shot, uh, more often than not, they're skipping it across the green or uh, blading it or what have you, or they're digging, you know, uh, two inches behind it because they're coming down. So talk about both of those areas a little bit and see if we can help some folks. One of the biggest problems that I see amateurs make in the wedge game is um, they tend to – play the ball too far back in their sand, and they tend to get their hands too far in front of the ball at setup. And what this does is this exposes the leading edge. Now, whether they're trying to hit the ball uh, five feet or 100 yards, uh, this is going to cause the club to stick into the ground. And so when you when your club is sticking in the ground like that, that's where you get the, the heavy shot or the chunk shot. 
Um, the other thing is, is they use their hands way too much in their, in their swing. Uh, they don't use enough rotation uh, to get their power from. So this goes back to the things that, you know, I talked about earlier is making sure that your ball position is correct, making sure that you're playing the ball more inside of your left heel. You don't want to let that ball start getting way, way back in your stance. Um, whether it's a wedge shot or a pitch shot, your, your ball position is going to be, you know, just, just about with a, with a full wedge shot would be about an inch or so inside of your left heel. It doesn't need to get farther back than in your stance because when you play the ball farther back, you can't rotate. You can't. So you have to use your arms and your hands. Uh, if you do rotate and, and turn to the target, you're going you're gonna, to uh, completely miss the ball. So that, those will help you in, the, in your full wedges. Um, you know, and, and, and really not changing, you're not really changing what you're doing in the full swing. You're just basically changing the club. As far as the short game goes and, and around the greens, um, again, when you get those hands way out in front, you're going to stick the club in, into the ground. And so what you want to, you know, Clint kind of alluded to this is using the bounce of the club. Uh, the bounce is very important. And, and if you don't uh, know what the bounce is, you need to go, to your local PGA club professional and have them explain to you uh, where the bounce is and how to use the bounce. But simply this put is when you open the club face, you use more of the bounce, which allows the club to slide. So anytime my ball is sitting in a position where I need to, to slide it under the ball, um, I want to open up the club face, whether I'm using my lob wedge or sand wedge. And even sometimes with my gap wedge, uh, in certain situations, if I have a lot of green to work with, I might open up the face a little bit. Uh, this is going to help keep the club from sticking. Um, I would much rather hit pitch shots uh, on firm ground than wet ground. Wet grass is very difficult. Uh, you're going to tend to make a little bit more divot. So hit, the most important thing that I would, I would tell all the listeners out there, if you're struggling around the green with your pitching, whether you're hitting it fat or thin, it's, the, it's essentially your club is hitting the ground before it hits the ball. It's either sticking in the ground or it's hitting the ground, bouncing into the ball, and you're blading it. What you need to do is make your rehearsal swings. So if I have a tight lie pitch shot, which is an extremely difficult shot, it's more difficult than the bunker shot Clint was just talking about. The difference is, though, I can make practice swings. And what I want to do, because most of the time you're not going to be on level ground, you're going to be on an uphill, downhill, ball below your feet or ball above your feet, make those rehearsal swings and kind of see where your club is bottoming out. And that's where you want to play the ball. You want to, you want to, you know, and don't just stand there and do it, you know, rotate as if you're hitting the shot, but start paying attention to where the, the club is hitting the ground. If you're not hitting the ground, that's a problem. That means something's off in your setup. So you've got to make, you've got to find the bottom of your swing in this practice swing. So when I'm pitching around the green, I make a lot of practice swings. I try to find the bottom and then I set up to it and then I commit to the shot and go from there. So those are uh, extremely uh, frustrating shots around the greens because that um, really starts adding up on your score. And I've always said, if you really want to improve your scores, if you're really focusing on your scores, the most important thing to work on is your pitching because most of you are not going to hit the greens in regulation. And there's a lot of days when I go out there where I don't hit the green in regulation. So I know if I'm good with my, my lob wedge, my sand wedge, hitting pitch shots, high shots around the green, uh, getting being able to go over trouble, I'm going to be able to save my score. Well said. Um, you know, it all boils down really to technique 
and uh, once you have that understanding of of how to set up properly and and get those fundamentals down pack and the only way to do that is to go and and obviously uh, work with a, a professional um, such as the two gentlemen that are on uh, the show tonight and um, you know I think once you get that guidance and learn uh, how to put the ball in place correctly and how to set the club correctly behind the ball and how to grip the club and so on and so forth and once you do that it's just simply a matter of go out and practice those things and, and get them to the point where they become second nature uh, too many club golfers get out there and they don't really pay attention to what they're doing and they're changing everything. As I mentioned earlier, they're changing everything. Um, you know, one minute they're gripping it this way, the next minute they've strengthened it, they've weakened it, they're moving the ball position all over the place and the round uh, just sort of, you know, goes kaput. And this brings me to a, cl- a question for you, Clint, and this happens time and time again uh, with many of our recreational golfers uh, come into the same category, and that is falling apart on the back nine after you've played a great front nine. So how can I avoid if I'm out there and I've got 18 holes to play and I've had a really good front nine and then all of a sudden I don't know what's happening. The wheels fall off the bus. I don't know what goes on, but the back nine just seems to go. um, What can I do to change that? That's a tough question, Ted. I mean, um, (laughs) because it, 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 yeah, it um, it could vary for a lot you're of well, different reasons. You're One welcome. Is, it could be a psych. Yeah, here you go. A psychological. Yeah, thank you. Uh, from a psychological standpoint, if you shoot a good round on the front side, expectations are going to go up for the back nine. You know, they're out there. They got their cart way before the horse, adding up the score, and they start thinking about, well, this could be my best round ever. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of demons that creep in on on things like that, and. Because you also see just the flip side of that. They get off to a bad start, have a terrible front nine, and they play their best golf on the back nine because that expectations, you know, this is not a special round, so you just relax and go play the play the black back nine and have a have a really good nine hole. So it kind of flips either way. So I think a lot of it's psychological. You know, the other side too is that you know some golf courses the back nine might be a little harder than the front nine in reverse or. You, you've got this one hole that you just don't like, and so you're, you're dreading getting to it. If you can get past those first three holes on the backside and get past number 14, you're going to have a good round, and you get to 14 and make a quadruple bogey, you know, because you're just expecting that to be a, a a problem for you. So, you know, and then there's the physical side. And particularly for some of our players that are, that are getting older and like I am and we all are, is mm-hmm. that, fatigue will begin to set in. So it's very important to, to keep your hydration level up and, and have a little snack at the turn, nothing major or heavy, just a, you know, a, 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 a energy bar or something to keep your energy level up. And hydration is critical, particularly in the summer uh, for those last three or four holes coming home, because I mean, fatigue and, and getting tired and not be able to, to manage your body through the ball like you were for the first five or six holes is, is, is reality. I mean, you got to be careful with that. And so with those things in mind, I, I think it's very difficult. We always will just stay in the moment, play one shot at a time. Those are great cliches, but they're very difficult to do when you're excited about having a good front nine and moving on to the back nine. But you really have to, to do those things. You just have what's in front of me. I'm going to play this shot, and I'm going to play the next shot. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and try not to allow those thoughts to creep in 
but which are very difficult not to allow them in. So, you know, I think, and if you see that pattern happening a lot, what you should do is try to get to the golf course one morning early and see if the, the, the golf pro or the manager or the starter will let you start on the back nine first. Play the back nine. If you start having trouble on the back nine all the time, you want to play the back nine first. Find out if it's the, that side, if it's, the, you know, whatever it is, flip the nines over and see what happens. You know, I used, there was a golf course I played years ago that the sixth hole, I just couldn't figure out how to play it. So late one evening, I took my shag bag out there off the tee box, and I said, I'm going to figure out how to play this hole. And finally figured out, okay, here's how I need to play it. And to get past this this really difficult hole that was getting into my head all the time. And if it's the back nine getting into the head a lot, they need to flip it over and see if they can break that that thought process to where they can play that nine is as well or with the same confidence level that they play the, the nine that they like. Okay. Um, very similar to we all have the favorite club. You know, we always have the club we don't want to hit. We do anything to hit the favorite club and do anything to avoid the, the, the club I don't like. Um, I always encourage people to try to figure out how to hit them all if you can. Uh, have some confidence with all your clubs. Have confidence going to that back nine after you've had a good front nine. And those things you just have to you, you learn. It's, it's not something that's natural. And um, try to, I guess the old cliche is just don't add them up until you get done. Um, is the easiest way to look at it. But, you know, do anything you can to break that, that rhythm if you start having that, seeing that happen all the time. It's happening once in a while. It's just you have a good nine and a bad nine. But if it's something that's beginning to be a pattern, you have to figure out how to break it. And um, switching the nines, you know, playing a hole differently, just break the rhythm somehow and uh, see if that will help you. Well said. Um, just to sort of quickly recap on that, you're, you're exactly right in, in your analogy. Um, there's a bunch of different areas that a lot of our club golfers fall into, um, and you hit right off the, the one right off the top, and that was the score. Uh, more often than not, um, many golfers, once they've had a good front nine, they start getting excited, and they think, wow, I'm on my way to maybe for the first time to break 90 or to break 80 or whatever the case may mm-hmm. be. And right away, they, the anxiety levels, the energy levels build up. And instead of hitting that seven iron 150 yards, their adrenaline starting to, to rush because they're excited. And the next right. thing you know, all of those distances start coming out of. And we see that even on the, on the, uh, the tour level um, when they start Absolutely. getting a, a good round together. Uh, so here are a couple of areas that, that really folks need to pay attention to that Clint uh, very eloquently uh, discussed. And that is... Um, First and foremost, throughout your entire round, stay hydrated. Um, don't just drink water. Um, there might be some good uh, drinks out there uh, that uh, contain electrolytes that are good as well, especially if you're out here in the heat of the summer. Uh, it can get pretty pretty steamy down here in, in uh, Florida and, and up where you are, Clint, in the Carolinas, and really all over mm-hmm. the country. But um, some areas more than others can get really, really hot. So you want to stay hydrated. Um, the, the physical side... Um, as John pointed out, you know, you've got to keep yourself in shape. Um, if, if you're, you're not exercising, you're not getting out there and, and building up that stamina more often, not, especially with some of our older club golfers, they get out there and, you know, by the time they hit the turn, their energy levels are down. Um, you know, the momentum's lost. They've had a good front nine, but they're having 
trouble keeping steam going for the second nine. Uh, and a lot of that is um, just not being in good shape and not taking care of yourself. So get out and walk and, 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 you know, get out there and do other things to keep yourself and build your stamina up. Uh, and that also falls into, again, energy levels uh, with eating, um, you know, get a, t- have a snack around the turn. Um, as much as it might be tempting to scarf down a chili dog or, or, you know, have a couple <laughs> yeah. of beers or something, you know, we want to have fun and we want you to enjoy it. But the truth of the matter is, um, and I'm going to get to that in the last uh, part of it, but, um, you know, have something that's healthy, you know, something that's going to give you some energy. And I don't mean hopped up energy. I'm just saying good fuel for the body. Um, and that might be something like a, even as simple as a banana or half a sandwich or something like that that's going to give you some energy to carry you through the next uh, nine holes. Um, and the last one is uh, what I would say is hold the celebration. Wait until the round's over. If you've got a good round going in that, don't start celebrating halfway through it. Wait until you get back uh, and you're hitting into the 19th hole then you can have a little bit of celebration. Have a couple of beers to look back and, and talk about your great round. And, and if you want to have that chili dog or a burger or something like that, by all means, that's when the time uh, to do it if you're going to do it. But don't do it during a round because you're just going to zap yourself of energy. Um, and, you, and as Clint mentioned too, um, the other thing is sometimes it, it, it becomes a mental issue where you consistently start having a bad back nine and then it, it sort of gets into your psyche. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, you're having great nine front nines all the time, but Lord help you when that back nine comes around, everything falls apart. So switch it around. Start with the, the back nine. If that those holes typically give you trouble, start off there and see if you can turn it around and, and break that cycle. But uh, And when you're in doubt, go and visit your local professional. Get them to help you through that as well. But those are some areas that I think a lot of uh, folks struggle with. And I think, um, you know, uh, if you pay attention, you're smart about things, Again, we want you to have a good time when you're out there, uh, but if you're knocking back three or four beers in a round and you're dehydrated and you're not uh, eating good uh, food and you're focusing on your score all the time, you're not going to have a good round overall. You're lucky if you had a good front nine. Um, John, I'm going to give the last one to you, and this sort of falls into a little bit about what we're talking about here. And, and uh, Sometimes starting off the round, uh, a lot of people are very, very nervous uh, getting off that first tee and uh, – just not able to get it uh, under control. And of course, this falls up into the, the mental side of the game as, as the previous question. Um, what are your thoughts? Or how do, we, how do we get our nerves in check? Um, everybody is obviously nervous, and, and some nerve, uh, nervousness is good. Uh, little butterflies is okay, but sometimes people get a lot of anxiety with this. So how can we help them get ready to hit their first tee shot of the day? What can we do to calm things down? Well, first of all, um, when I work, especially with tournament golfers, with with, uh, younger players or people who are playing in their club championship and they talk about being nervous, and I have some ladies sometimes who are, you know, they get nervous, uh, you know, playing with other women that they've never played with, and and we all get nervous. If you're nervous, you're nervous. The difference is a tour player is used to it. And so one of my favorite quotes is uh, from Raymond Floyd. He said years ago, he says he tries to ease himself into the round. And so what that means is is early on in the round, um, you don't want to take a lot of chances. You don't want to take a lot of risky shots. You want to to focus on, obviously, hitting the ball in the fairway. When you get in the fairway, hitting the ball on the green. If the the pin is tucked behind, you know, three bunkers on the first hole, playing more to the middle of the green, uh, you know, and especially if you're, you know, out there 150 yards or more. 
So, you know, you're not taking a lot of excessive chances. That's, that is one way because anytime you do something uh, where you, like, for example, you drive it into the trees on the first hole and you sit there and you go, wow, you know, I could hit uh, right through that gap and I'm going to go for it on the first hole. You might be better off on the first hole to just play out sideways, get in the fairway. Now, if you're late in the round, and you're and and you know maybe you need something you need a little burst and it's and you feel confident you can hit the shot then that might be a little different but never I never try to take chances early in a round so I want to ease myself in the round because I'm already nervous the second thing I tell my students is I want you to be nervous because that means you care the difference is I don't want you to be scared I don't want you to be afraid to swing the club I want you to use that the the adrenaline and this is where a tiger I think is just world a world beater at this. I think Nicholas was the same way. Is he he is able to channel the the nervous energy he has, and he's able to calm himself down through his breathing. You can see him do this if they get a get a real up close shot of him, and he he breathes. He he taking he's making sure he's getting a lot of oxygen deep down to the diaphragm. It's very important that you do this, and, and I think if you have if you feel yourself making your heart's pounding and your legs are shaking and you feel, you know, all that, that anxiety going on. The first thing that you need to do is start drinking or start, start drinking, start breathing. Uh, <laughs> not, don't drink yet. Drink later at the turn that came out the wrong way. Start breathing, start, start breathing, start, you know, getting the oxygen into you and that, that will definitely help you. And then as you're, as you're playing in the, in the round, um, you know, I think that, um, it's basically from there, it's learning how to uh, to manage yourself around the golf course. And one of the things that I used to always do in my management is my favorite club, um, I love my three-wood when I was playing in tournaments. And so even if it was a par five, a lot of times, especially if it was a par five where I knew I couldn't reach it in two, I would use my three-wood, especially if it was early in the round, because I felt, I, I was like, I know I can get this in the fairway. And I always tell them, I don't care if you've got to go down to your six or seven iron, pick a club that you know that you can get into the fairway off the first tee. And I know realistically most people aren't going to hit a seven iron off the first tee. But I have a lot of my newer players hit their hybrids. And I, and I prove it to them on the, on the driving range. If you tee up your hybrid, you're probably going to do better than you're going to do with your driver if you're a new player. Or if it's an extremely tight hole, there's a lot of trouble out there, then, you know, making sure that you're, you're um, uh, hitting a club that you know you can get to the fairway. And the last thing I'll tell you is your diet is very important. You do not need to drink a lot of coffee. If you have a morning tea time, you don't want to be all hyped up. Uh, you know, you don't want to be drinking sodas during your round. That sugar, that's not going to do you any good. Um, if you are going to take in sh- sugars, it needs to be through, uh, you know, uh, some of your Gatorades and sports drinks and stuff like that. But I try to just drink water. I, and a lot of the tour players, when I was out on tour in 2008 with Bob, we, he would, I noticed a lot of them would dilute their, they would take an energy drink out of the cooler. They would pour half of it out and then they would pour water on top of it. You don't need to, I mean, that stuff has got a lot of sugar in it. You don't need all that sugar. So I think if you water it down a little bit, that's a safer way to go. Uh, because if you drink too much uh, caffeine before your round, you're not going to do well, especially when you're on those first couple of holes. Yeah, yeah, that, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, we've seen that too many times with a lot of golfers as they're, um, 
the other side of the coin between uh, drinking too much alcohol obviously is not good. And again, we want people to have fun and, you know, it's meant to be a fun round, but I've, I've, and this is just my own personal experience. I always found myself played worse. You know, if I, I tried to have a couple of beers through the round and, and um, you know, because to me, it didn't relax me. It actually did the opposite. And for me, I, I enjoyed having a few cold drinks after my round, we could sit and talk about it, have a few laughs with my friends when we used to play a lot and, uh, and, you know, even a few clients here and there. And, uh, you know, I, I don't knock anybody from doing that, uh, you know, by all means, but again, you know, if you're out there and it's, you know, 90 degrees and you've got humidity and that, and you're drinking that alcohol or you're drinking a lot of coffee and, you know, coffee is a diuretic. So it's, it's going to, you know, literally go through you very quickly and especially out in that heat, it's going to hop you up. You're going to, you know, get the jitters and whatnot. And um, and then also too, what often happens is whatever goes up comes down. Uh, you become very lethargic uh, as well, uh, whether that's alcohol or even coffee. After a while, when that sort of high or temporary buzz, as, as they put it, uh, kind of comes off, then you start to get a little bit lethargic. And uh, and then that's sometimes why you don't have that stamina for the rest of your round. So some great advice, uh, guys. Some great tip tonight on the panel. Uh, discussion. I appreciate it. And I'm going to give each of you uh, an opportunity just to share with the folks uh, how they can uh, reach you if they want to uh, connect and, and maybe if they've got any follow-up questions they'd like to ask. So, um, Clint, I'm going to let you go first and then John. Okay. All right. Hey, Ted, this is a great show. This could very well been the – if people will take the tips that we all put out there tonight, the game's going to get better without a doubt. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. John, I always enjoy it. Um, if uh, they want to get a hold of me, it's real easy. It's clintgoff 1 at yahoo.com. Be more than happy to respond back to them and, and uh, look forward to doing the show again. But the, this show was, was great. Great tips, and people will take it and, and use it. Their game will certainly improve. So I'll uh, look Appreciate forward it, to Clint. next time. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. Thank you, Clint. And John? Ted, again, thank you for having uh, us on the show. And Clint, I, as always, I really enjoyed uh, being on with you. It's been, I think this is our first time this year. And I, every time yeah. I'm on with you, I always pick something up. Um, if the listeners out there want to get in touch with me, I'm on all the social media platforms under John Decker golf instruction. And my first name is spelled J O N. So John Decker golf instruction. You can go to uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. Um, so I'm on all those channels. Um, I'm also writing, uh, as you mentioned earlier, with Golf Tips Magazine, and um, the the uh, I have a feature called Fairways to Heaven. So I'm really excited about that. And my book, Golf Is My Life: Glorifying God Through the Game, is available on Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and Walmart.com. Perfect. Well, guys, as always, thank you very much for joining me uh, on the panel tonight, and I look forward to you guys coming back the next time. And have a great weekend. Hopefully uh, the weather will be good and you'll be able to get out and and teach some golf and maybe even play a little bit uh, yourself. So uh, as always, uh, Clint and John, thank you very much for your time. And uh, we'll see you next time here on Coach's Corner. Thank you, guys. All right, that was the uh, tonight's panel on Coach's Corner. Uh, Clint Wright and John Decker, uh, always enjoy having the, the, the guys on here. And, and of course, each week, uh, for if you're just tuning in for the first time, we have uh, different guys come on uh, every week and try to mix it up a little bit. Some of them come back uh, a little more often than others, just uh, um, more flexibility in their schedules. But uh, always enjoy having some different thoughts and different viewpoints. Uh, and I think, to, uh, as Clint had pointed out, I think tonight was a good one. I think tonight was uh, 
a good discussion on some things. A lot of uh, amateurs have difficulties and uh, struggle with for their own game, and uh, hopefully we helped you a little bit. And what I always like to uh, suggest to people is if we've uh, you know, if you've come in late into the show and maybe you missed some of it, at the end of the show, uh, wait a little bit. Of course, the shows are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central. Uh, but you can go in and, and you can check it out. You can go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live uh, after the end of the show. And you can go back and scroll down to the archive section. And uh, usually within about uh, 30 minutes to an hour after the show airs, uh, you'll see the recorded version there. So you can always uh, go back, and if you missed part of the show, you can go back and listen to it there. So I uh, appreciate everybody uh, joining me this evening for the Coach's Corner segment. And now I'm very, very excited to welcome my very special guest this evening. Uh, we spoke uh, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, for the first time ever, and had a great uh, discussion. We're going to bring some of that discussion here uh, to the show. And, of course, I'm talking about my very special guest, uh, Danielle Amakapani. Uh, she is an LPGA professional and uh, currently a Legends Tour player. Uh, she's uh, just 5'5". Uh, but she started playing at the age of 12. Uh, she credit, credits her mother and father and Bill uh, Cornelius as the individual who most influenced her career. Uh, she married her husband, Rod Kessling, on January 6, 1996, and gave birth to her beautiful daughter, uh, Laura Ann Kessling, in 2000, and her son, uh, Denver Christian Kessling, in 2004. In addition to being a top uh, golf professional, she owns a sports bar with her father in Phoenix, Arizona, and her sister, Dina, also plays on the LPGA Tour. Uh, and Danielle uh, was also inducted into the Arizona State Hall of Fame back in 1997. So please welcome my very special guest, uh, Danielle Makapani. Good evening, hey, Danielle. Dan, how, how are you? Are you? Hey, I'm doing Dan, very well. I'm doing extremely well. Thank you very much uh, for being my very special guest this evening. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So let's, before we get into um, some of the other things that you do, obviously golf has, has been a big uh, part of your life. And, and uh, I will occasionally throughout the, the next hour, I will um, let the folks know some of the, some of the highlights, if you will. You, you've got so many, uh, I would have taken up the whole hour reading them all out. So that's why I had your intro a little <laughs> short because you've got too many things. But we can, we can touch, or I'll let you actually um, – you know, when we, uh, when we get into our conversation, but let's talk golf for a little bit and then we'll get into some of the personal stuff on that, uh, that we, we, uh, discussed a couple of weeks ago, but, um, let's talk about you as a player. First and foremost, what was the deciding point? You know, you obviously started playing golf very, very young. Did you know that you wanted to become a tour player at some point? Well, actually, yes. Um, I was very young when I actually thought I wanted to play on the LPGA Tour. I was actually 10 years old, I think, when I – I actually started when I was 10, and um, not really 12. I was uh, maybe a little bit later, maybe when I was around 11. Somewhere in that neighborhood, I was involved in a, a summer class that my mother had, had brought me to every single day for, every, for a whole month. And it was an all-day thing, and it was a, um, it was fun. It they they dove into teaching you, and then you would go play nine holes, and you break for lunch, and do all these kinds of things. And it was every, I loved it. I loved the game back then, and um, I knew kind of at the end of that summer, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is cool. So, um, I kind of knew at a very early age that's what I wanted to do. What was it about the game? I mean, there's so many, you know, obviously, you know, as we grew up, there was so many other sports and that, but what was it about golf that really appealed to you? 
Well, the I think the the fact that I had control over whether I did well or not. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a team player. I, I tried team sports, um, but it was hard for me because I, I I put out so much effort, and I felt like, gosh, if we lost, I wasn't happy with that because mm-hmm. I felt like I gave a hundred percent, and and if somebody else didn't give a hundred percent, we didn't win. I just I just it didn't really sit well with me, and I guess I just wasn't one of those team sports kind of gals. And uh, golf was uh, was one of those sports that I felt like, hey. I put the effort in and I play well and I did, mm-hmm. and I did it, you know, like nobody had an influence on that. And I, I loved that. I liked the feedback and I liked the gratification that I got um, and the way it felt when, if I put the work in and it came out, it was, it was me and that felt good to me. Yeah. And I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, when you put whatever effort in and that effort provides a reward in the case of a win of a tournament or an event that you're playing in. Um, there's nothing more satisfying. It, it's all up to you. It's what, what effort you bring into it. Like you say, if you bring a hundred percent into it and uh, obviously there are certain challenges whether it be the course and obviously competitors that you're playing against. Um, but it all falls onto you. It's, it's how much effort you put into it and how much preparation you make. Um, you're not relying as you pointed out on somebody else to, sort of carry you through to the winner's circle, if you will. So I agree with that. It's a very individual sport. Obviously, there are some team competitions, uh, a la, you know, Ryder Cup and Solheim Cup and things like that. Um, but for the most part, it's an individual sport. So everything falls on your shoulder. So you either win or lose based on what effort you bring to the golf course that day. So I agree with you, and I think it's uh, what really makes golf much more unique um, than virtually every other sport uh, out there. As I said, I wanted to mention a couple of things, and I want to go back to your amateur uh, career a little bit uh, before you uh, turned professional. And, uh, you know, you had a, a very successful junior career. Uh, you won the 1984 uh, Broadmoor Invitational and the 1985 U.S. Women's Amateur uh, Public Links Championship. Uh, you went on to, as I mentioned, attend uh, Arizona State University, where uh, you won the 1985 NCAA Championship and the 1987 Pac-10 Championship. Uh, and you also represented the United States uh, on the uh, 1986 Curtis Cup team. So very, very early on, there were clear signs of um, not only success, but you knew in your mind at that point that you had some game and you had an ability uh, to move on to to professional level. Um, would that be fairly accurate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yes, that would be accurate. <laughs> I uh, I did I just love the competition. You know, I love to play. And um, uh, a funny story, just kind of going back again to just I, I just have to say this is pretty funny. I don't know if I would have I probably would have gotten into something. I don't know if it was golf, but back when I was trying to figure out what kind of I love sports and I didn't really know what I wanted to do and my my mom and my dad had gotten me into a little tennis league and um and I thought maybe I wanted to play tennis because my mom was playing a lot of tennis and I used to follow her around to the courts when I was younger and she used to take me and my sister and we'd have to sit and do all that but um I thought maybe tennis might be a great you know sport for me so I got involved in that and at the end of that um the the coach uh, the coach had a little team uh uh 
tournament, you know, amongst all of us. And odd man out myself had to play with, against the teacher. And the teacher ran me all over the court. And I, I, I left that day saying, nope, that's it. I'm done with tennis. I'm not playing tennis anymore. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do another sport where I can be on the offense and I can feel good about, you know, what I'm doing. I just felt like I was getting run all over the golf court, all over the uh, the court. And, um, and I don't like running anyways. And I thought, nope, this is not for me. So, yeah. So that's when I got involved in golf and, um, and I just excelled in it. And I'm not exactly sure. Um, I, I do actually know when, um, like when I got into high school, that's when I really, uh, I loved the game and I, and a, kind of a weird thing happened to me that when I attended Thunderbird high school here in Phoenix, I, uh, did, they did not have a gals team for me to, to join. So I actually had to try out and play with the boys and they allowed me to play if I would qualify. So I did. And my freshman year, I played the number five person on the team. And, uh, mm. and as I, went up through the ranks through my years there I ended up playing number one and two my senior year and uh, did wow. quite well but had to but had to play with the boys from the men's tees carry my bag and do everything that the boys had to do and and because of that and I was really tiny back in high school I had developed a wicked short game because of it and I because I couldn't get to any of the par fours in regulation and even the par fives everything was just it was a lot so, I mean, it was just chip and putt, chip and putt, and, and pitch and, and putt and everything. And, and I was able to play and just develop a really good short game. And that's what took me to college and then beyond that. And, um, and I really, I do, I credit everything, everything of my, about my game to that, to that part of my life. Um, I just I think if I had played against girls, I just don't think, I don't think I would have, I would have developed the way I did. You know, it's interesting that you say that. It, it There's a lot of players over the years that went through a very similar path to you that, um, you know, obviously um, that particular time in their, in their lives, they didn't have access uh, to a golf team other than the boys team. And they wanted to play. They wanted to get out there. There wasn't really a lot of options for them. So they, if they wanted to play, um, you know, gosh darn it, they had to play on the boys' team. But I think it made them a better overall player because it raised the level of competition at that time, and it really made them work even that much harder. And as you said, you weren't hitting it as far, um, so you had to really have a tight short game in order to be able to, to really be competitive and to go from you know the number five spot uh, in your freshman year to one and two in your senior, um, that's quite an accomplishment. So when you look back, would you agree with that assessment that it helped to propel you even more than if maybe uh, that wasn't uh, what had happened? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I say, I, I credit that time in my life to my career. Therefore, after anything I did after that, I, I give credit to that. I mean, I can still remember to this day, I can go back and remember rounds of golf that I had and things that I was doing, the, you know, the chips that I was hitting, the putts and just, and getting the ball and, and the boys that used to play against me from the other schools and stuff just hated it. And, um, and they hated getting beat by a girl more than anything. And, and I didn't, I didn't really look at it that way. I just looked at it as if I was just competing and I just liked it and it was fun. And, 
and I had to do what I had to do. And it was just hard for me, but I, I loved it. And, you know, they didn't like it very much, but, you know, in the end, that was the only place that I could play. And, and that's what I had to do. So yeah, it elevated my game in every way. You at some point became a tour player and found yourself out on the LPGA tour completing competing, excuse me, with some of the best in women's golf. Were you nervous when you first went out or do you feel that you had a lot of confidence based on your, both your amateur and, and junior career uh, when you first stepped out on the LPGA tour? Well, I was, uh, I was confident, but I was also really nervous. I, really didn't have any idea what it was going to be like uh, out there and uh, certainly playing against ladies that I've been watching on television. And uh, I I can remember times playing with Joanne Carner and some of the greats of the game, um, Pat Mm -hmm. Bradley and Kathy Whitworth, uh, Donna Capone, Nancy Lopez. Um, God, I Mm -hmm. even played with Marlene Hagee way back in the day. But I remember playing with these legends and I just went – I am not going to get in anybody's way. I'm just going to, you know, do my thing and, and try to stay out of everybody's way. And, and I did, and I didn't try to, uh, yeah, I just didn't want, I didn't want to feel like I wanted to ruffle the waters at all. And it took me, it took me four years before I won my first event, but I got good. Mm -hmm. I got better every year and I, and I learned how to play out there. It was tough because, you know, we had big crowds back then. And uh, a lot of television and the camera guys were walking behind you a lot. And it was really unnerving at times and um, tough to focus at times, you know. So it was just a learn- big learning thing for me. It, it really was. It was. But it was fun. It was fun. And I got, I got better every year. What was the first professional tournament that you won? And what thoughts when you walked off 18, knowing that you were the winner, went through your mind? Well, um, I don't think, I don't, well, I don't, I know you don't know this, but my, my first two wins were right here in my hometown. Um, ironically enough, <laughs> where I played high school <laughs> boys golf <laughs> on the team is where I won my first two LPGA tournaments. I won my first one in 1991 right here um, in Phoenix at Moon Valley Country Club and turned around the very next year, came back and defended and I won again. And, um, and that started my career. And you couldn't have asked for, you know, a more memorable way to start a career, but uh, to win at your home golf course where you grew up playing high school golf. It, there has to be, I think, for anybody in your position who, you know, wins a, a tournament, especially on your home turf, as it were, um, I think it's, as you pointed out, equally rewarding. Because, uh, again, you've, you've played in that area for a long, long time. You know a lot of the people that have come out to watch you play. And so, it, obviously, there's a little extra nervousness, if you will, and, of course, excitement. Um, but it has to be equally uh, rewarding to say, hey, you know, I've, I've walked these, these uh, grounds for, for many, many years in my junior and amateur career. And here I am in a professional event, and I'm putting it away and uh, making it that uh, my first win. 
Um, so that has to add to the extra excitement. Um, let me ask you, at some point you became a member of the U.S. Solheim Cup, and going back to what you talked about earlier, um, where that really wasn't your forte, did you enjoy that experience as much as you did playing by yourself? I mean, obviously you're, you're supporting uh, your team and so forth, but was that a, a bigger struggle for you uh, playing on a team at that point? Well, um, well, not a struggle because you're, you're representing the United States and um, mm-hmm. I couldn't have had more fun uh, being a part of that team. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, both teams that I were uh, that I was on, both the Solheim and the Curtis Cup, I was on losing teams. So I mm. guess maybe you could say I don't. I'm not saying that it's my <laughs> fault that we lost, <laughs> but right. I, I was on two, I was on two losing teams, and I and I for the life of me can't figure out, um, you know, because I won some matches, but uh, didn't didn't fare very well in my singles matches. Uh, but I was always a pretty good match player. Um, back in my amateur career, my junior career, I was really good at match play and playing one-on-one. I don't know why I didn't uh, have as much success on those teams as I should have. Um, but I was, I was, I was so happy to be there on both those teams. And um, you know, I just don't know. I don't. You see a lot of players, even on the PGA Tour, some of them just don't do well. And maybe I just right. don't do well, but I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself and it wasn't that I didn't want to be there and I didn't play. I played well. I just didn't win. I would, didn't win enough. And, um, yeah. but yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just one of those ironic <sighs> things that happened. Well, and you know, Tiger comes to mind as a good example of, of what you're talking about. You know, Tiger has played um, on many a Ryder cup. And yet when you look at his record, it was not, you know, stellar compared to, uh, his his solo career, if you will, um, and I think you're right. I think some uh, players just um, are are very very solid in their own right, um, but in a team format, for some reason, it just does not fit. It's it's almost like you know Jack Nicklaus famously said, certain courses didn't fit his eye. I think that's true when it comes to uh, team golf. I think it does not fit as well for some players as it does for others. Others went on and actually played much better. Uh, whether it be the Ryder Cup or Solheim Cup or Curtis Cup, um, but didn't play as well in their solo career. So uh, it can have the opposite. Some, some, you know, fed off of their teammates uh, a little better than others and were able to get out there and, and create the charge and, and come through very successfully. And yet when they were out there on their own, uh, didn't seem to be as, as uh, the winds didn't seem to be as forthcoming, in other words. Um, let me ask you something. As a, as a tour player, you had a lot of um, time... Uh, in various tournaments to play with amateurs. Um, what were some of the things that you saw amateurs do? And obviously, I'm sure like many of the pros, you tried to help them as best you know, as you could uh, during those, those times. What were some of the common uh, things that you saw a lot of amateurs' mistakes, in other words, that you would see them make in, in, the, uh, in the pro-ams? Oh, gosh, that's a loaded question. Uh, I saw everything. <laughs> I saw everything in twenty in the twenty a, years that I played. That's a big I list. saw it all. I <laughs> and the list is long. <laughs> I I everything. I there wasn't anything that I didn't see. Um, I saw guys top it, you know, hook it, slice it, 
you know, hit it way up in the air, you know, hit him on the ground. Um, I mean, there, it was all over the place. Uh, ran into quite a few uh, really good players. Um, I was on some winning pro-am teams. Um, I remember making a couple hole-in-ones and a couple pro-ams. Um, just having a good time. You know, the guys, I always tried to make it really fun for them. And I had already done, you know, my work on the golf course prior to the pro-am. So, you know, that was just kind of like a gravy day. And it was just a day to go out and have a good time and see the golf course. Yes. Again, for the last time before the tournament starts, but it really wasn't the focus. And it was just more, let's just, let's have a good time with these guys. Let's relax before the tournament gets started. And, and uh, show them a good time. And, and we always did. And we always had a real good time. We always chucked it up and we laughed and throw zingers at each other. And by the end of the day, it was, you know, it was all in good, all in good fun, but we always had fun. And I, if I, you know, if someone wanted some help and, and they wanted me to look at their golf swing and, and give them a few tips and I was more than happy to, uh, to chime in and, and help. But most of the time I, I really didn't want to because, I just, it just, it just makes it hard because they're, they're going to try and right. do what you want and then it's going to take them out of the, it, it's just going to make the day, uh, right. the turn differently. You know what I mean? We're, we're there to have a good time. And if they want to work on their golf yeah. swing and stuff like that, then, you know, we might do that another day on a, on the driving range. But yeah, the, that day is just all about having a good time. It's not about hitting it great. They don't need to. We, you know, we can play off of my ball all day long if we want, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. So that's kind of that's the way I approached it. Yeah, and I agree. I think you you know the idea is you want them to have a good time. They're there, and and you know obviously they're going to learn automatically by watching some of the things that you're doing. And that, and you know one of the things I'm sure you probably would agree with this as well. One of the things I've heard a lot of other professionals talk about uh, in a pro am situation that is very very common is not taking enough club. That was probably one of the biggest ones I've heard with interviewing a lot of uh, players is that many of the amateurs that they're, you know, their pro-am partners um, should have hit maybe a five iron instead of, you know, a six or a seven iron in order to uh, approach the yeah, green. So that was I, I something. I would probably and, agree with that. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, it was, yep. that would tend to be top of the list. <laughs> yeah, I would probably Let's go back. tend to agree with that. Absolutely. They, I think that, that when they get in those situations where they're playing with another professional, they want to think that they hit it further than they do. And they don't, right. um, but they're going to, they're going to try and, and that's fine. You know, that's fine that I, they're paying a lot of money to play with us that day. And I don't care what, you know, I'm, I don't care what club you hit. <laughs> if you're, if yep. you want to hit that club, then then go for it. And, and a lot of times, yeah, they, <laughs> they were always uh, misclubbing themselves. So yes, I would, I would agree with that. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of professionals say that, and and you know it's understandable. Like you said, they they, you know, we talked about this in the first segment uh, before you came on with with the guys in the coaches corner panel, and we talked about um, how a, a lot of um, you know of our club golfers and amateur golfers, um, you know, hit one good shot on the range with their seven iron, and I think that's the distance they're hitting with their seven iron. Um, even though the other 10 shots they've hit with that club don't resemble anything like that really good shot, but that's the number they take up in the golf course, whether it be 150 or 155 yards or what have you. And I think that's yeah. uh, unfortunately what a lot, and I know you see that. So let's go back to you for a second. This was a question I had for the panel earlier, and I'd like to get your take as a professional, because I think it happens to all of us. Take the scenario 
where you've had a really, really good front nine and things are really going good and all of a sudden a couple of bad holes come up, um, what did you do in the moment? And I'm sure you've had rounds like that where things started off really great in a tournament and then all of a sudden the wheels started to fall on the bus. How did you recover from that or did you? Well, uh, I'm trying to recall if there was a specific event where I can, where that happened to me. Um, I'm sure it has. I can only give you an answer based on what I think I would do now, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. because I'm sure it, I'm sure it happened uh, back then. Because everything happened to me back then. Um, you could start off hot and have it go cold, or you could go start out real cold and then catch a hot hand towards the end of the round too. So um, it could go both mm-hmm. ways. Um, right. Obviously you'd love to start out cold and end up, you know, a hot hand on the way in. But, um, but if it starts to go South and, you know, you started off really good. Um, I can, I can maybe think that some of it might've been, I got tired, a couple lazy, bad swings, maybe, um, my thought process wasn't real great, pulled some bad clubs, didn't hit the shot I needed to hit. Something like that probably happened, and and then that just kind of fed on itself. And then it just, it's hard to, you know, if you got a good caddy, you can somehow stumble your way in without losing everything and then to the range and figure it out. But more often than not, probably for me, it was either I got tired or I got lazy or um, I made a mental error. Um, mm-hmm. is probably probably what would have happened. And I think obviously you would agree too that, that the most important, this is again where the difference between a tour player such as yourself and, and obviously our amateurs out there that are listening tonight. Um, I think the main difference is the professionals always manage to learn something from that example. In other words, if they have a bad hole or a bad round, they don't dwell on it in the moment. They move on and they play the next shot that comes up. But at a later point, they will reflect and they'll look back on that round and they'll see maybe it was a mental mistake, maybe it was a, you know, a, another mistake of some sort, and they learn from that uh, and then deal with it then. Conversely, the amateur golfer tends to dwell on that, that you know, issue at the particular time, and that's where the round continues to even uh, further digress, if you will. Um, so if you were to give some advice at this point to our amateurs that are listening tonight, um, faced with a similar situation, um, what would you say to them? How would you, if you were their teacher or coach at this particular moment, what would you say to them uh, after that round on how to handle that situation if it were to happen again? You mean where they got, where they started off pretty good mm-hmm. and then it kind of, they lost it coming in? Well, that's yeah. E- either way, either yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you would have to try to identify what what was it that caused that, right? What did you get tired? Did you mm-hmm. make some lazy swings? Now, now the you know everybody's in real good shape, right? The the whole workout thing mm-hmm. is is a real big thing, big part of golf, and hit you know being mm-hmm. really strong and hitting is absolutely as far as you possibly can is is huge in golf now, and because they don't care All where right. it goes, they just know that they're going to be hitting wedge in from there, so you know, they're fit. So they're not getting tired at the end of their rounds. You know, they're not doing that kind of thing. Back when I was playing, you know, fitness didn't come around until Annika introduced that to Mm -hmm. everybody. So, you know, I was well 
probably into my career, not well into my career, but I was into my career before that all started. And I don't know how much of that real, you know, like she influenced everybody to kind of start working out little by little. But things were, I would say now, if that happened, you know, you got to identify what do you think it was that, did you make a mental error? Did you pull the wrong club? Did you, what, you have to kind of try to go back and, and look at it and say, hey, where did it go wrong? And what was kind of going on at that time? Did I, what did I do? So this way, you, when you go back out, if you ever get in that situation again, you don't want to make those same mistakes again. Uh, don't learn anything if you keep making the same mistakes over and over again. So if there's a way to identify what happened, I guess that's the only way that you can really prevent it from happening again. And, um, you know, a lot of times if you keep your stats too, maybe you just weren't, maybe you just weren't, you know, hitting the greens and just weren't getting it up and down. You just don't know. You know, we used to keep stats on our cards. I think most players do. They want to kind of know where they're at mm-hmm. You know, what went wrong that day? It's always a, a quick uh, overview of what happened that day, you know. Um, that's always good to do. Uh, keep some stats, putts, how many fairways you hit, how many greens did you hit, did you get it up and down from the sand or, or from the grass, and, uh, and kind of look at that and say, hey, I need a little work on this. This went fine. Because so, at the end of the day, if you're playing in a tournament, if you can't sit there and say, well, I don't, I don't really know what happened. And you just go to the driving range, but you hit it real good that day. You don't need to be at the driving range making yourself tired, hitting balls. Go figure out what was it that caused the problem and go work on that and then get the heck out of there. I don't know. I see a lot of kids going to the driving range right after they're done, and, and a lot of times they hit it fine. I, I, don't, I don't find that that's absolutely necessary. I think, I think it just makes right. you tired and then just go. Go figure out what it is that you didn't do right and go fix that. Yeah, I, I think, and, and you raised a, a great point, uh, Danielle, and, and that is to, you know, keep stats during a round. You know, how many putts are you making? And and uh, more often than not, as, as I know you're aware, is, is the short game more often than not is where you're going to lose strokes. People, I think a lot of our amateur golfers worry too much about their tee shots, which not to say that they're not important too, uh, but you're only hitting – you know, 13, 14 uh, drivers in, in most rounds. And, um, you know, the rest of it is your short game. And uh, for some reason, they, they just want to see how far they can hit it out in the driving range and, and don't seem to care too much about how many chips and pitch shots uh, are accurate and, and putts uh, they make. They just seem to figure, well, if I can get it down there, you know, 275 yards or what have you, um, I'll worry about it when I get down the, down the fairway. Um, but short yeah. game is obviously important to you, and, and you actually are doing some clinics now, correct? I am, actually, yes. Uh, short game is important to me. Again, um, I attribute everything to uh, back when I was in high school and, and having and developing the, the short game there, and I uh, I love that part of the game because I, I never get bored. I can go to the golf course all day long, and, you know, I don't have to stand on the driving range and, and for a couple of hours. I can stay there for 45 minutes or an hour if I want and hit my hit some range balls, but I could spend the rest of the day because there is so much to do in the short game area, and there's so many shots mm-hmm. that you can practice. Um, and I love the creativity of being in the short game area. I just love that part of it because um, I'm very creative and um, I have really good touch and feel, so I, I like to do those kinds. Of, I could stay there all, all day long. So that that part was always fun, and I am doing some clinics. Uh, I'm actually going to do uh, do one out uh, one in Sedona, Arizona, on October 14th and 15th, and um, and I'm starting to develop a few more um, af- 
Very good. Let me ask you, while we're on uh, short game in that, what do you do to make it fun? I mean, I know you enjoy it, and I obviously enjoy working on the short game as well. But what do you do to make it interesting um, for your students? Because that's that's an area, and I think that's one of the biggest complaints I hear as a, as a teach professional uh, from students is, well, it's just not fun to you know to practice on the putting green. It's just not fun hitting a bunker shots. What do you do? Do you do you kind of make some games out of it, or what do you do to to kind of make it a little bit more interesting and a little more challenging? I wonder why they say that, because I find that to be. I, <laughs> I find that to be like a lot of fun, and I find it to be hard, uh, and that's what makes it fun. So it, it's like, well, is going and hitting three hundred yard drives is that why is, that doesn't seem fun to me? But I don't hit it three hundred yards either, so I don't know. But they, you know, that it would be fun, yeah, if I was hitting it super far. But like you said, you only do that fourteen times, not even sometimes. You know, you've got a, you've got par threes in there, yeah. so you're not even hitting fourteen. You know, you're not even hitting. Right. You might even be hitting some woods off some of those tees. So, it is for me the short game. Let's just say if I was going to teach somebody here, would this is what would make it fun? Instead of taking a bucket of balls or a bunch of balls down to a chipping area, just take ten, ten of your own balls if you mm-hmm. want. So this way you're practicing with your own ball and you know how it feels and you know how it's going to react. Take 10 balls and we work in, I work in tens just because of the percentage it's easy to figure it out. Right. So if you're going to hit a chip shot and you're only going to go 20 feet up there and you're going to try and take your 10 balls and try to get better than 50%. So you got to get five or more balls within a certain area. So put, you know, give yourself a, four, five foot circle. If you want to start out just to practice, you know, if you're practicing and you're not a real good player, make your big, make your circle bigger and then kind of make your circle smaller as you kind of go along and get a little bit better. But for me, I probably would make that circle at least three feet. um, And I take my 10 balls and I I start chipping. And if I couldn't get at least 50% or more, then I got to bring them all back and I got to stay there till I do. And then I would move that, and then I would say to myself, well, i got to get at least 60% or 70%, six, seven, or eight, nine balls. You know, you make it so that it gives you a little bit of pressure. It gives you that, hey, i got to do this, kind of like a tournament situation. You're only using mm-hmm. 10 balls, so you're not getting tired, so you're not sitting there just mindlessly hitting a bucket of balls at the same place and just kind of reloading, reloading, and just hitting, you know, because that doesn't do anybody any good. And it kind of keeps no. your mind engaged, and it gets, it gets your nerves kind of going. So I like the 10-ball thing. If you just do that, and you can just take your 10 balls, and you can go around, and you can do that in the bunker too. You can take your 10 balls, mm-hmm. and if you can't get 50% of them out of the bunker, and you got to bring them all back in here and do it again. So it just gives you like a nice, uh, a nice feel, um, and you don't feel like it's just mindless chipping. Yeah, and that's a great point, and that's a great idea too uh, of approaching it. I do very similar to you, and – and, you know, again, I don't, you know, have students that I work with bring a whole bucket of balls. We just, you know, uh, again, usually do 10, uh, something very similar and, and at the various different stations that we might have, whether it's on the putting green or it's just off and we're working on our chipping and what have you. Um, but I do the same thing. Um, and, and you have to make it fun. You have to make it interesting. And, 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 of course, it's challenging, which I think adds to a little bit of the anxiety and stress that a lot of folks have. And that's probably why. They prefer to hit the, you know, try to hit the 300-yard drives because they figure even if I don't get it there, it's fun watching the ball go out, you know, further than, you know, plopping it 20 or or 30 feet onto a green. So, 
Um, I like you. Oh, you got uh, the, you know, I understand. Yeah, you got the right. twitchy muscles, you know, when you're chipping. You got those twitchy right. muscles, those little muscles that, you right. know, people get a little nervous and they get a little twitchy and they, you know, and they don't like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's easier to get up right. there and just bang out drives and bang out three woods and, you know, and hit seven irons really hard. That's that's a lot easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. And they feel like, you know, that they can do that even if they're nervous, you know, but it's always hard right. when, you get, you get down there and you're getting into these little moves and these tiny little things and, you know, and you have to be a little more precise and that's, but that's why I think it's so much fun. And that's why I think you could spend some, right. if people would just spend a little bit more time down there, they wouldn't get like that. They would get they right, would gain exactly. a lot more confident. Yeah. They gain a lot more confidence and they'd be, and they would get it a lot quick, a lot quicker. Um, and they wouldn't have those kinds of fears. I agree. Uh, I think if more, more of the folks out there worked on their short game, um, and some of these areas that you just mentioned, I think that they would have a much more enjoyment. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to hit it, you know, further and 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 create more distance. We all want to get a little more distance, <clears throat> excuse me, in our in our uh, game. But um, at the end of the day, you know, you can hit it 250 yards down the middle. But if you can't, you know, close the deal and get it in and in, in uh, you know in in par or or, or what have you, um, you're not going to have a very enjoyable round. And I think this is why statistically. Um, the percentages for when it comes to handicaps are still so high is because people are, are working on the opposite set, uh, opposite side. Instead of working on around the green, they're working off the tee box and figuring, well, if I can hit it farther, that's going to solve my problem. Or if I get a new driver, that's what's going to make things better for me. And the truth of the matter is they need to be working from the green back. And um, I think yeah. that's uh, – you know, an area that they'll do. And, and I know that's what you're doing in your short game. Um, you mentioned a few moments ago about working out. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What are you doing now to uh, uh, keep yourself uh, engaged and, and, uh, and doing the things that you need to do? Well, um, so recently, just this earlier this year, uh, my husband and I, we just decided that uh, we were not going to uh, live in these bodies that we were in and the way that they were and, and the way that we felt. And so we did something about it and, uh, you know, he lost 20 pounds and I lost 16 pounds and, um, we started, uh, eating better. I like to cook and, um, Mm -hmm. we're eating now organically or naturally, um, uh, nothing that's processed, no processed foods and no sugars, and uh and those kinds of things so we're we're really watching uh the amount of food as well and and then all of those things and it has really helped um it i took away all the inflammation that i had in my body which which was uh, i didn't realize i had that much in and i realized also too what foods that i was allergic to that made me swell mm-hmm. up and made me not feel it made me not feel good and then those i stay right. away from now and uh, I feel so much better. And I work out. I'm working out three days a week. And um, I've been working out in this awful heat that we have here. Um, <laughs> uh, but I have I have a good friend of mine, uh, Arnie uh, Fonseca. He is uh, my he's my close friend and trainer. And he has been uh, mm-hmm. working my sister and I out. And I am a lot stronger now. And I've had a couple of knee surgeries, so I I've uh, just wanted to just feel better. And I feel good. And I sleep better. And I'm getting a lot stronger, and I feel like um, that is going to help me in my golf game as well. Because, you know, I was—I'm not mm-hmm. a very big person, and I never have been, and I'd never hit the ball really far. I was never known as a good ball striker. Um, but I—I want to be a little better, and so, and I think I'm seeing that translate uh, my strength into uh, hitting it a little bit further. So I'm excited about that. 
Well, and, and it also does other things too, Danielle. And we're going to talk about food here in just a minute because I know that's something that uh, you're equally passionate about. Um, but just to talk about what you just mentioned here about getting into better shape and just feeling you know better all the way around. I think that we've you know we've kind of gotten away from our traditional eating, if you will, and we've fallen into this trap of processed foods, and because it's quick and it's easy and uh, and um, you know it, it's convenient and that sort of thing. And you know you hear people complaining that they're feeling lethargic all the time and you know low energy and they're hopped up in sugars and whatnot and uh, you know people don't look at at golf as being uh you know as as hard on the body as say other sports are but that's not really true i mean you need uh you know a lot of stamina to to go 18 holes and especially if you're stringing three or four rounds together you know in the in the week uh, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of effort to be able to do that, and especially in areas like where you are now, and in, in uh, uh, you know, in, in the desert, if you will, um, it, it's hot, and it's um, you know, if you're not keeping yourself in in uh, good shape and you're not uh, keeping yourself hydrated, uh, it, it, it's very easy to become lethargic, you know, partway through the round. So if people want to play better golf uh, and be able to last longer and have more energy. You know, when they're hitting 15, 16, 17, and 18th hole, um, they need to take better care of themselves. And obviously, this is something that you've uh, recognized, and your husband's recognized, and, and you're making uh, changes as we all should be uh, doing that. Um, so, kudos to you for for uh, for doing that. Um, I mentioned we were going to talk about cooking. Your father was a chef, so I'm assuming you uh, yeah. you got some good you got some yeah. good tips from him. And uh, you guys uh, have some restaurants as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, yeah, so in the beginning of the show, you, you mentioned that my dad had a restaurant. Uh, he no longer has that restaurant. He did retire. Okay. Uh, he sold that uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, my dad's 81 years old now, so he, he mm-hmm. sold that just prior to his 80th birthday. And um, he re- uh, was in the business his whole life. And, he, you know, towards those last couple of years, he really didn't want to be he did just didn't want to be sure. doing it anymore. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot of hard work. And anybody that knows anything about what my father did, as far as his food and and how he cooked it and how he prepared it and how he made it, you know, it, it would nobody would do what my dad did for one week, much less, you know, <laughs> fifty some years that he did it. So it was um, it was time for him to move on and retire, and he did. And I'm happy that he did. He did it actually, you know, at the perfect time, obviously, with this pandemic now going on. Um, he got out and he was, mm. he plays golf now and he's, he's able to do that. And, uh, but I grew up in the restaurant business and since I was a, a baby and a child and I remember it, I remember lots, lots of things about the restaurant business and, and growing up in all my, all the places that my dad had out here. Um, and I love to cook. I love to cook. And he, he still teaches me things now and I ask him questions and stuff. So uh, my grandfather uh, developed a cookbook and uh, my father and I are now redoing that cookbook. Um, And I'm just in the stage of uh, rewriting those, some of those recipes and I want to bring those back to life and I'm going to put them in a nice book and I'm going to probably put some golf stories in there and some things like that. So (laughs) hopefully that'll be, uh, hopefully that'll be a lot of fun to uh, to put together and hopefully people will get a kick out of that. You know, it's interesting. um, You know, so many good things happen around the dinner table, you know, with uh, especially, um, you know, in my case and and yours, when you, you come from, 
you know, an Italian background, uh, particularly, and and um, you know, you have uh, big dinners and and you got together. You know, my family growing up, you know, we got together. Um, uh, not the kids, of course, but the uh, the adults got together, and they would have. Uh, you know, it might be a, a ravioli making, uh, you know, day or or gnocchi or or something else, and uh, they would they would spend, you know, the whole day, you know, making it and and preparing it, and uh, you know, in those days, a lot of times, you know, the aunts and the uncles would get together and they'd, you know, open a little wine or or something along the way. Of course, <laughs> that was always part of the part of the deal, and I know you can relate. And you know, oh, yeah. they would oh, yeah. make up make up batches of it and then each of them would would you know bundle it up and and take some home and it would last them you know for a little while and then they'd get back together and do do it again uh, you know the next time um was that some of the memories that you had growing up as well with your family and particularly your your father and maybe even um your grandfather of of that type of thing where they would get together and and the meal was not just you know let's sit down and eat and go out and do whatever uh, it was almost like a little uh, mini project, if you will. What were your memories? Um, oh, gosh, my memories uh, in my family. Oh, my mom and dad used to love to entertain. Oh, loved it. They mm-hmm. always had people over. They were always cooking and they were always entertaining. We always had people over. Um, and if they weren't coming over, my mom and dad were always going out. And um, right. they left me and my sister with babysitters back when we were <laughs> when we were younger. But... <laughs> Um, I do remember, uh, you know, you go over to my grandmother's house and you walk in the door and you could just smell the sauce and the meatballs. And, um, mm-hmm. and that was it. That was our Sunday meal. It was the, it was the meatballs. It was the meat in the sauce. It was uh, all mm-hmm. so tender and it would just fall apart. And it would just, Oh, it was so good. But you know, they, that was it. That was what we did. My dad to this day, my dad made, made his own sausage in the restaurant and mm-hmm. I just was over at his house the other day, and he was making sausage. At my dad's retired now, wow. and he's home. <laughs> he was making sausage because his sausage was so good; it was ridiculous. And I said to him, "We have got to figure out a way to sell this." <laughs> but it is—it it, was—it's not like anything that you could ever buy in the store. You just can't. You yeah. can't buy that kind of sausage in the store. And he's making it, and it's just—it's fast. You know, that's the kind of stuff I remember. Um, I used to help my dad in the restaurant a lot make sausage, make meatballs. I used to weigh them. They had to be a certain weight. And then mm-hmm. I'd roll them up. And um, the best time to ever get my dad's sausage was right out, right after it came out of the oven. He put it in the pizza oven. It would come out and he would stick it on the chopping block and he would let it, he would let it just cool. And I, just at that point where it had been cooled down, just starting to cool down, that was the best time to dig into it. Absolutely the best. And he'd always... Mm tell me not to get into it and he'd be like yeah I'll give you yours don't touch that and I would just <laughs> want to cut into it and eat it. it's so good but my dad did a lot he made his all of his own sauce um you know he made his own meatballs uh, made his own lasagna made his own soups he, he made a lot of different mm-hmm. kinds of soups he did a lot of stuff he cut his own steaks I've never seen a guy um when the meat used to come in my dad would have a half of a calf come in and they'd lay that thing right. on that chopping block, and he'd take his knife to it like he was a surgeon, and he knew exactly where to cut and what to cut off, mm-hmm. and not one piece, not even the bones, nothing went to waste. Every single piece of right. that went to something. Some of it would go, the bones mm-hmm. would go on the sauce, 
uh, for flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd use some of the fatty parts uh, for the sausage, but not a lot. It would all burn mm-hmm. off. My dad's sausage was yep. just amazing because it was not fatty at all. Um, yeah, and it just uh, he just used everything, so it was great. It was fun to watch him, and you know when he when he was in his heyday. I had an I had a I have a funny story. When my dad had a restaurant here in Phoenix, he had uh, Liberace. Um, actually oh, wow. was performing and my dad my dad knew a lot of people and in the restaurant business he just knew a lot of people and Liberace my dad shut the restaurant down and he had Liberace come and dine at my dad's place and he brought 10 of the most gorgeous men you've ever seen and um, at the end of the day I did get a at the end of the night I was able to meet him uh, I was not able to mm. be out in the dining room when he was out there but um, you know peeked around the corner and then uh but I got a chance to meet him, and that was probably one of the highlights of my life. That was pretty cool. Yeah, he was uh, he was definitely quite the entertainer, and and that would definitely be something that would stick out in your mind for uh, uh, for many many years. You know what's interesting? Oh, yeah. um, you know, then you know when I hear you you know talking about this, and and uh, you know obviously I know that uh, you know this is a this is a golf show, and you know we talk a little golf, but I think it's also important for people to you know, listening to the show that, you know, there are so many things and so many great memories. We're all very, very much the same, um, you know, growing up that we have different family experiences and, and um, you know, we have an opportunity as, as you did. And I had a very similar uh, experience growing up as well with, uh, um, you know, with my parents and, um, you know, having a lot of entertaining uh, in-house and when they weren't entertaining in-house, they were going somewhere else, whether it be a relative or friends or what have you. And, and uh, it right. was just a, a very family, very, you know, it was just a, a wonderful time, uh, you know, in, in, in history to, uh, you know, to look back on fondly. And, and those are things that I miss. I'm sure you probably do as well with, with um, when we look at sort of today's society and, and everybody's sort of in a rush and, and there isn't really the same, uh, you know, viewpoint with family and that. So I, I really hope that we start to gravitate back to that because I think, there were some great life lessons, you know, that we all learned uh, in spending time with our family and, and close friends. And, and, you know, my aunts and uncles played a very big part in my life and growing up and, and helping to, you know, guide me along. It wasn't just, you know, my parents. Uh, there was, it was a family. It was literally a family. And, and I got just as much trouble from my uncles and aunts as I did my parents when I was going down the wrong path. So, yeah. Um, you know, there yeah. was, there was many sets of eyes and it's a different format, but, um, um, and I know wine is, is, was always something it, it flowed very well in, in my family as <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it probably did yours. Um, now your father didn't get into winemaking or anything. Uh, did he as well as, as cooking? No, no, my dad, my dad didn't like wine. He just wasn't a wine drinker, although my husband and I did uh, get into drinking wine here um, in the last uh, 10, 12 years or so. We've kind of um, in- enjoyed uh, learning and, and drinking different kinds of wines. My dad uh, strictly mm-hmm. was a scotch guy. <laughs> he was mm-hmm. uh, scotch and water, and that, that was pretty much it. Um, and... Uh, you know, he just, he just, he'll venture, like if he, he knows he's with some people who can pick some really good wines and he's not going to snub his nose at it. He'll dive in and, and drink with us. But uh, I know that's not exactly what he would prefer. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I just, me and my husband, we just, we, we like that, but he would serve it at the restaurant and, 
you know, we had a sure. quite a big bar at our place, and um, we'd have some wine there. Not the best, but, you know, nobody really kind of came. It was a sports bar. Nobody came in there really for wine. So, um, Right. But, yeah, yeah, just me and my husband. We just kind of – we like to uh, dabble into drinking different kinds of wines. We have a little wine fridge here. It's actually not so mm. little, but it's uh, – <laughs> it is a uh, – <laughs> You know, it's just fun, it's to, fun to keep some good wine. <laughs> yeah, have them have them sit around for a while and then crack them open later on. Um, and we we found some good ones that we like. So uh, yeah, very good. Um, I know now, and we'll get into it more. Um, for those of you tuning in a little bit later in the broadcast, my very special guest is Daniela Marcapani, uh, who has played for many years on the LPJ and now plays uh, on the Legends Tour, which is the uh, senior women's uh, uh, tournaments. Um, I know that you're involved with that as well. And we'll get into that a little bit more because you're going to be joining uh, both myself and my co-host on my Tuesday morning show, the uh, show, the Women of Golf, uh, LPJ professional Cindy Miller, who I know you're familiar with, um, who also yeah. played on the, the Legends Tour. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit more um, on Tuesday, so we'll save that. Um, but share some final thoughts for the listeners. Let's go back to golf for just a second because we're we're almost. It's hard to believe this hour has just been flying by. Um, yeah. But um, share some some final thoughts if you would. If if you're had a room full of junior golfers, um, male and female doesn't matter. Um, what advice? would you give them they're just learning to play this game for the first time? Advice as to, um, I, I, I'm not sure. I think I understand what you're asking. Well, just, advice. To, just how, if, if you were talking to a room full of, of young junior players, let's say, and you wanted to help guide them, they've really maybe not played golf before they're new to the game. Um, how would they, how would you recommend they, they get started playing? I guess is the way oh. I'm, I'm looking at this. Oh, okay. How would they get started if they were new to the game? Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, if, if, if I had some, uh, some folks like that and, and I have taught some, some people out here, uh, you know, that are new, new to the game and they, they want to learn from me, um, you know, just starting out with uh, a good coach is, is, is certainly important. Um, and learning the basics, you know, um, having fun with it at first, uh, learning the rules, the etiquette of it, you know, learning all those kinds of things and, and getting the basics down, you know, the, the grip, the stance, the basic swing and, and just learning and developing that um, and just having fun with it. Um, You know, as a beginner, if you're just starting out, you can learn the short game just as easy. Uh, You can go and do Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff as well. And you can mess around down there all day long doing that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but if you decide that once you kind of get into it and you just don't really like it, I know some people sometimes they stay in it, but, you know, maybe maybe it's just you don't have to stay in it, you know. Golf is great like that. Like if you just decide it's just not great, then go. you can always find something else to do. Um, there were a lot of people I was growing up with that, you know, they played and then they quit and, um, and then there's some I see getting in later in life, um, mm. you know, because this game is so great, and you can you can play till you die, 
and you can yep. play as early as you, you know, whenever you're walking, if you can pick up a stick and, you know, and you can hit something with it, you can play the game as, you know, at that age. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. there's so much to it. There is so much to it. Um, one thing I do know that is if, if you love the game, it's not hard for anybody to, uh, it's not hard for me to, to tell somebody to go practice and to go do it. They'll just do it. But if they're not really into it all that much, they're not going to go do those kinds of things. Um, it's just, they're just not. Um, I know at my level, that was just, it was important, right? You had to practice and you had to get good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anybody that's just looking to have a good time with it and wants to play and, and be with their buddies and their friends and um, just go have a great time with it and have a have a nice attitude when you go to the golf course and that uh, remind yourself you're not a professional and you're just you're gonna go and have a good time and you're gonna make mistakes and you're gonna and you're gonna learn from them but and you're gonna hit some bad a lot of bad shots but don't worry about it you know um, get with a good mm-hmm. teacher someone who can kind of give you those good fundamentals and then just go and just go have a really great time yeah I, I couldn't agree more I think you have to um, you know I think you have to go out and have fun uh, you know Cindy and I over the last few years have interviewed. Uh, a number of the up-and-comers uh, on the Symmetra Tour, which, of course, leads into the LPGA. And uh, many of them, you know, struggled their first rookie year and, and sometimes even to their second or third season uh, without a win. And suddenly they changed their attitude and decided, you know what, I'm just going to go out here and have fun. And they put a lot less pressure on themselves. And lo and behold, um, in many cases, the very next week, they went out and won their first tournament. So I, I agree with that. I think you have to, you know, obviously they have to continue to work well, yeah, hard I mean, and, and focus. Right. But yeah, you have to go and have fun. Why, why you started. Yeah. Like you, when you start right. the game, you start because it's fun. Like I'm not going to go play baseball because I don't think it's fun. If I think it's fun, I'm going to start playing baseball, right. Or softball or whatever. But that's, that's the whole gist of it. If I'm having a good time mm-hmm. when I'm learning to play the game, if I ever get to that level of, of great competition and I'm winning, you know, tournament, tournament level golf, that kind of level. Well, you've got to still remember where you started and how much fun it was growing up doing all that kind of stuff. It doesn't ever change. Nothing ever changed. Nothing has changed about the game. The scores are still the no. scores. Still people way back when in the day were shooting in the sixties and they still are shooting in the sixties. Nothing has changed about right. the game other than the fact that if you're not having a good, if you're not winning, then you're not doing what you were doing when you were a kid. Right. You know, if that's right, if exactly. you're getting to that level and things and things have changed for you, then you've changed from maybe who you were when you were playing the game really well when you were younger. So you got to got to make sure that you look at that and say, "Hey, wait a minute. Just because I'm a professional now doesn't mean that I have to act differently or play differently." No, it just means I'm a professional now and I just have to go and do this for a living. I have to do more of it. But if you mm-hmm. love it, that shouldn't be all that hard to do, right? So the attitude is is just that, you know. You take what right. you what you've learned, what you've done your whole life, and you just take it to the next level. I couldn't agree more. Um, I think the you know, I think the premise is just to go out there and have fun and enjoy it. Um, and I think when you take that added pressure off of you and just go out there to have fun, um, you'd be surprised at what you can accomplish. Well, Danielle, I want to thank you very much for joining me this evening on Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to you joining us next Tuesday, uh, Cindy and I on the Women of Golf Show in the morning, and uh, yep. we'll talk a little bit about the uh, uh, the Legends Tour and uh, maybe some of the other things that you're doing well, uh, doing right now as well. So thank you very much for joining me, and uh, have a great weekend, and we will talk to you next week. 
talking with you. Take care. All right. Thank you, Danielle. All right. That was my very special guest, uh, LPGA professional and Legends Tour player, uh, Daniela Macapani. Um, Join me uh, the second half tonight on Golf Talk Live and uh, sharing uh, a little bit about her experiences on tour and uh, a little bit of personal uh, side of Danielle as well. And we'll share that and more on Tuesday. If you missed tonight's broadcast, go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Golf Talk Live and you can catch the recorded version uh, here in just a moment. And then don't forget to join us uh, on the Women of Golf Show, also on the blogtalkradio.com network uh, next Tuesday from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern you'll be able to hear uh, Danielle as we continue the conversation with my good friend and co-host LPJ professional, Cindy Miller. Have a great week. I will see you next week here on golf talk live. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast at golf talk live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.